there's a very strong chance that anyone listening to this episode has enjoyed a Fuller's beer in the past. That might be London Pride, ESB, or Vintage Ale. Or maybe it was Cheswick Bitter, Honeydew, or Bengal Lancer. The list goes on. For many years, these beers were produced at Fuller's in West London under the watch of John Keeling. Having spent more than four decades in beer, John has seen how the landscape has changed across the UK and further afield. And during his talk at our Brewers Lectures event in Norwich last week, John explained how the balance of power between cask and keg has long shifted, why flavour should always be at the forefront of your beers, and why smaller independent breweries need a philosophy to aid their growth. Hello and welcome to the Brewers Journal podcast. My name is Tim Sheehan, editor of the Brewers Journal. And I'm Bella Mitrovich. Well, it's good to be back. Our Brewers lectures in Norwich last week was our first since February 2020. And we're raring to go with Bristol on the 29th of September. And then our Brewers Congress event in London on the 7th and 8th of December. For info and tickets to those events, check out lectures.brewersjournal.info and also congress.brewersjournal.info. Speaking at Norwich was John Keeling, one of the UK's most decorated brewers. John started his career in beer as a lab technician for Wilson's Brewery in Newton Heath, Manchester in 1974. Three years later, he left to study for a degree in brewing and distilling at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh. And in 1981, he headed south to join Fuller's as a junior brewer. During his time in West London, he held various positions, culminating in his promotion to brewing director in April 1999. In that role, more than £60 million were invested in developing the business before John handed over the reins to Georgina Young in 2017. Although John has left the day-to-day element of beer, he remains an ambassador for Fuller's. Here, he takes a step back to look at the lay of the land in beer when he first joined the industry. I'm so old, in actual fact, I was born BC. That's before craft. So I saw craft rise up to where it is today. So let's just move on to my first slide. When I first started drinking, which was way back in the uh, uh, mid, early to mid-70s, it was just about as camera was forming. Camera were formed in 1971. They were formed in, in response, really, to the big companies and their vision of where beer was going. And in particular, they wanted to promote traditional cast beer and traditional pubs. And in this, they found willing allies in what was left of the family brewers. The big six, which I don't know if you know, were Allied, Bass, Scottish and Newcastle, Guinness, Whitbread and Watneys. And of course, they're all around today, making beer, owning pubs, etc. So they were obviously correct. The big six wanted to turn people, uh, the, the breweries of the family brewers into one large big brewery, a mega brewery. They wanted to make mega breweries, which would brew about a million barrels of beer per year. They wanted to do this because they wanted to reduce costs. 
by, by putting it into one big site and distributing it using cheap distribution, petrol was cheap in those days, uh, and process it in, in big batches. And they found that, in particular, the mash tun was not suited to producing these big batches 24 hours a day. So that's why they really employed mash cookers and louter tons to do that. And they were really run on this cost basis and therefore accountants had massive power within, within these companies. As did marketing, as did sales. And the poor old brewer was relegated below them. The brewer simply had to make the beer that the accountants and the marketing wanted. And they really wanted to make keg lager. Keg ale was something they would do as well, but they preferred to produce keg lager. And the reason they wanted to produce keg lager, and it's like anything, you just follow the money, they made far more money out of keg lager than any other beer they would produce. And they did this simply because, firstly, the duty they paid was much reduced over the duty they would pay on ale. Because in them days, their lagers, whether it was Carlsberg, Heineken, or any of the other big company, uh, uh, company lagers, were all produced at something like 3.1% alcohol, 3.2% alcohol, 3.3% alcohol. And that was against, you know, ales being produced 3.5, 3.6, 3.7, best bitters at 4%. And a beer like ESB, for instance, which I later went on to make when I joined Fuller's, was a whopping 54 gravity, 5.5% alcohol. We also matured ESB for three weeks in the brewery before we sent it out for sale. And it was sold at cheaper than the lagers, who were made in 10 days. So their processing costs were less and their duty costs were less than ESB, but they had even more margin than we did. And one of the reasons they had margin was because it was a lager. And lagers used to be only imported into this country, so it had a markup on it because it was imported. When they started brewing it in the UK, they never lost that markup, they kept it. So again, that is why they wanted to make lager. But, as John explains, these businesses would encounter problems when it came to distributing the beers nationally. So what they used to do was pile it full of pasteurization units to give it long shelf lives. Because in those days, British breweries were a lot dirtier than they are now. And they suffered from infection problems. This was okay for some of the family brewers with casks because they would only put two or three week shelf life on. But for keg beers, where they wanted six, seven, eight weeks, right? They, couldn't, they had to put lots of PUs, and I know that when I joined Fuller's in 81, we were putting 55 PUs into our keg beers to give it shelf life. Oxygen control was poor as well. And this is one of the reasons they didn't like putting ale into keg, because ale had flavor and it just got oxidized and pasteurized. So it bore no resemblance to the traditional cast beer it was meant to represent. It was awful. And that's why Camera were fighting against that. But cask, on the other hand, particularly from the family brewers, had good quality. And one of the reasons it had good quality is it had throughput. There were some breweries in this country producing beer in hogsheads. And those hogsheads would sell in one day. When I joined Fuller's and we bought a pub in Birmingham, the old joint stock, which must have been 1990, I went there on a Saturday night. And I was talking to the manager 
And he sold 18 kills of London Pride in the Saturday night session. 18 kills, yeah? That's what the throughput was like. And that's why Caspier was so good. And that is why it's not so good this day. Because it doesn't have the throughput anymore. John would experience firsthand the measures certain breweries adopted to cut costs. But in travelling across the UK, he got to try some truly great beer. What happened to me personally during that period, I went on to join Wilson's in Newton Heath, which was part of the Watney Group. And I got firsthand what the big boys were doing. And some of these tricks they were doing to cut costs would sometimes spill over into their cast beer. Brewers would fight to protect the, the quality of the cast beer in big companies. I remember at Wilson's we had a chap called Harry Weekly in charge of all cast beer production. And he had a lot of clout in the brewery, but he could not fight the accountants. When I was at, at Watney's, we were having to put ingredients into the mash tun wearing gauntlets and face masks because we were adding so many enzymes. At one point, we were 40% unmalted barley in our beer. The adjunct use, and then we would add sugar as well. So the adjunct use was tremendous. That's why the beers made had massive margins, but they spent the margins in, in marketing because good marketing was the only way they would make this insipid beer sell. But drinking cask beer was a fantastic thing in those days. Family brewers had the throughput, and drinking with a family brewer was like supporting your local football team. When I was brought up in Manchester, it was Bonnington's and Robinson's. Those are the two beers near my house, and those are what we used to drink so much of. And, and we used to say Bonnington's was the best beer in Britain, even though we'd never drunk any other beer. Yeah? But it was our local football team. Just like Manchester United were the best team in the world. Well, we know that. But then we found a pub in Manchester serving Timothy Taylor's. So that inspired us to go to Yorkshire to try Timothy Taylor's. A friend of mine got a placement in Downing College, Cambridge, to study architecture. So the first thing we did was go to Cambridge to try the beers. And we found that Green King was fantastic. We'd never tasted Green King, especially the Abbott was brilliant. And these transformative journeys in beer would soon lead John and his friends to London. And with that, stronger ABV ales. I remember my friends are big Frank Zappa fans. And Frank Zappa was playing a concert at Hammersmith Odeon. So we all bought tickets to go to Hammersmith Odeon, so we're going to try the local beer. And in those days, there was a pub called the Britannia, just across the road from Hammersmith Odeon. It was the Fuller's pub. This is the first time we ever drank Fuller's. And we went into this Fuller's pub, and we said, well, what do you drink in London? And he said, you drink ESB. We didn't know it's five and a half percent. We were used to drinking 3.7 percent Boddington's. Yeah? So we, we had four pints of this ESB before we even went to see Frank Zappa. And then we went to see Frank Zappa, and of course we come out afterwards to have some more ESB. And Frank decided to come across and have a pint too. And luckily for me, one of my friends had a mobile phone, and he was able to take this picture of me and Frank enjoying our pint of ESB together. I know the resolution's not as good on cameras as in those days, you know? And it looks a bit cartoonish, but there is the actual proof that me and Frank had a pint of ESB together, way back in 1978. 
While John may or may not have met Frank Zappa on that fateful night, one thing was clear, that he and his friends enjoyed their beer. It was a major moment in his brewing story. Just as the advent of craft beer has had a huge impact on the brewing industry at large. That is the scene as it was in, in, in the late 70s, going on into the 80s. And then something else happened during that time. We had the rise of craft beer. First off, we had the American craft beer. And, and what was funny is that Fuller's and, and Sam Smith's as well was hugely influential in this first wave of craft beer. Sierra Nevada, um, uh, Brooklyn, and uh, Goose Island in Chicago, all were big fans of Fuller's beers, and, and there was good reasons why they would be, because Fuller's was one of only two, two family brewers exporting to the United States. The other was Sam Smith's, and that's why Sam Smith's today is still important in the United States, because they were the first in there with us. Also, Fuller's is near Heathrow Airport. Every American brewer that came to London dropped in at Fuller's for a tour and a drink of the beer. And, that's the, and then they found our, our pubs. So that is why um, Fuller's was so influential then. And then UK Craft came about. And in those days, really, UK Craft were copies of family brewers. There was very few taking outside influence from America. One of the few was, was Brendan Dobbin in Manchester. And I went to university with Brendan Dobbin, so I knew him quite well. So I used to go and drink in his pub in Manchester. And he was all forever going on about American hops. And he was one of the first brewers I knew in this country that was using American hops to make beer. And he used to just rip off all the big breweries. So for instance, he brewed a beer called Buddy Weiser, and he brewed a beer called Guiltless Stout as well until he got shut down by these companies. He was taken to court by them. But <clears throat> Brendan is quite, I think, quite famous in, in the world of brewing for, for, for being the first re person, really, to get onto it. And then, later on, of course, is that UK Craft then began to take its influence from America. And it was people like Garrett Oliver, etc., who, who, was, who was talking about English beers that inspired them, and, but they became copies of American beers rather than copies of British beers. And that's why we got this new wave now of essentially what, what, what are now world beers. Regardless of what type of beer you drink, John believes that there is a golden period in which you've enjoyed it. He also explains that he was fortunate to work for Fuller's at a time where investment was on the agenda, resulting in better beer for all concerned. My time with drinking beer got going up in the golden age of my drinking beer in the late 70s. Everybody's got a golden age of drinking beer. And I discovered that when I became Fuller's head brewer because there's so many people would tell me London Pride's not as good now you're the head brewer as it was before, etc. But they used to drink London Pride in their golden period. It's when they had weren't married, had no kids, plenty of money, and could go and drink as much as they want down the boozer. That is your golden age. But I want to say to you all in the audience, there is another golden age. It's when you retired, have no kids and lots of money. Yeah, just like me now. So that is another golden age for, for drinking. At Fuller's then, I joined Fuller's way back in 81. Just as they'd made a decision, they had really uh, not invested in the brewery 
properly for a hundred years. And their brewery was run down, and because it was run down, it was producing substandard beer. And their nickname in the 60s in the local area, the full name of the company is Fuller Smith and Turner. They were known as Fuller Shit and Turnips because their beer was so bad. But they decided at that point they would invest. And I was lucky enough to join when those investments were coming in. We started to spend millions on the brewery. And with that, we brought new ideas. So we, we didn't stay hidebound to tradition. We modified tradition to produce better, higher quality, higher consistency in our bits. So for instance, we introduced conical fermenters into making ale in 1978. Sorry, 76. And we brewed with got conical specifically to make this newfangled keg beer. But the, but the open squares were so rickety that their cooling systems would break down and it would take the engineers forever to repair them. So the brewers got used to saying, well, we're not waiting two hours, put it in a conical. So we put the beer in the conical and then we started getting phone calls from our landlord saying, what have you done to the beer? Why? Why is it so good? And we realised the conicals were making better beer than the open squares were. So we swung over. We won Camera's very first beer of the year competition in 78 with a conical brewed beer. We then won the second one with a conical brewed beer. So the decision was made then, we're going to put all the cast beer in the conicals and all the keg beer in the squares. And we completely reversed the tradition. But we started making better beer. And because we started making better beer, we started selling more. And those improvements to beer quality saw volumes rise considerably. When I joined Fuller's, we produced about 70,000 barrels of beer and we owned about 90 pubs. 75% of it was about cask. Yeah? 80% of the beer we made was sold in Fuller's pubs. 20% sold outside of Fuller's pubs. But from 89 onwards, when the MNC report came, we started growing fast. And when I become head brewer, we were brewing about 170,000 barrels and owned just short 300 pubs. So when I left Fuller's, we owned 400 pubs and were brewing 210,000 barrels. So that growth was phenomenal in that period. Nowhere near as big as Sierra Nevada's growth. They went, they went for nothing to two million in the same period. But America's a much bigger country. But we were very pleased, but we did that because of investment. This is what the brewery looked like in the late 60s, early 70s. Ramshackle, rickety, the warehouse was a basic shed. The only part of the brewery really that was functioning was the brew house. Fermentation was awful. Uh, we used to mature barrels, uh, mature beer in barrels for a week, not in tanks. Uh, and we were wooden barrels. We converted it all over in that period. And when I joined Fuller's, this was my first team. And um, that's, what, that's what we looked like. And, there, and there's a picture of the open squares. And these were... Um, you know, very difficult. We was operating on the dropping system and um, they were good at one point, but they were worn out and they needed replacing. And now there's a nice shot of fullers from the air, a nice neat brewery, a clean brewery, uh, lots of investment. Here's a picture of the two new mash tuns. 
that we call them new. They went in in 93. And uh, they replaced the old mash tons, which were a 60 quarter and a 40 quarter, seven and a half ton, four, uh, six ton. And these are two nine tons. Because of the new technology, we could use them twice in a day. We could only use the old ones once in a day. So we could make far more beer. Investment was made across the board at Fuller's, including two new robots in its cask racking line. The robots were named after two former Fuller's team members, Brendan Bray and Richard Keith. The Brendan robot stacks and destacks casks, while the Richard robot removes and replaces locator boards. The robots work in unison, much like the real Brendan and Richard did for decades. Quality cask beer still plays a major role at Fuller's, but John is concerned about the performance of casks elsewhere in the industry. I think we have almost the reverse of what it was when I first started drinking, in that cask is really struggling quality-wise. But now keg beers, you get fantastic choice of keg beers, different beer styles, not just the bitter style, not just the lager style. You get so many different styles and so many fantastic natural flavours in keg nowadays. And keg has come on leaps and bounds and is now fantastic beer to drink. But cask has gone down. And that's because of throughput. Cask is now less than 8% of the total beer. And the future of cask, I think, is fairly bleak. There is less cask beer being drunk now than when camera was formed, far less. And unless we do something about that, I think the future of cask is to decline probably to about 1% of the market. And it will only be brewed in specialist breweries and sold in specialist pubs. If there's one word that will spark debate with any drinks producer is margin. And John believes that smaller independent producers can maintain their margins as long as they take the right approach. Although we still have problems today, not everything is solved. We have problems of margins. I, I speak to European brewers and they think Britain is a basket case because of the thin margins we operate on. I know the big companies are particularly struck by this. This is why they have to sell millions and millions of barrels, because they simply make that much profit. About 10 years ago, Cause UK, more than 10 years ago, Cause UK last announced their profits for Britain as a separate reporting structure to their European profits. And they reported that they produced seven million barrels of beer that year and made 13 million pounds profit. If you work that out, that's less than a penny a pint profit. Margins really are stretched. We at Fuller's that year produced about 180,000 and we made seven million pound profit. So there was far more profit margin in what we were doing. So they're really stretched and they're still stretched to a degree. The other problem I think small brewers have is one of distribution. How do you get distribution? Big companies control distribution. They control it because they simply have to sell so much beer. Yeah? And it's, they put the finances in to control that. So how do you break into that? It's okay if you're local and you have your own local distribution. But as soon as you ever want to get bigger than that or go elsewhere, you have problems bumping into distribution. And those, those issues have to be solved in the future. Because I believe craft beer is destined to grow to become a third, at least a third of the beer market in the UK if it's done properly. Yeah. And it will be at margin. 
Because the one thing craft beer does, it sells at a decent price to have that margin. And that's why the big brewers are interested in it as well, because it's one way of clawing back their, their margin again. Looking to the future, John remains concerned with the health of cask beer, but believes there are ways to help its cause. Okay, cask versus keg in the future. As I said, the, the future for cask could be very bleak, unless we decide to do something about it. Keg, I think, will be kept going to producing a more and more natural product. And the quality issues that are around that and shelf life will be solved so that you will produce a very natural tasting, flavoursome keg beer that will have a shelf life that is appropriate for the market you want. But no longer will the distribution team drive shelf life as they've done in the past. I could never understand why we at Fuller's had to put a 12-month shelf life on our bottled beer to sell in Aberdeen. You know, you know, it only takes us a week to get it up there. They wanted 12, 10 months unexpired shelf life on every beer they got. Why? Does it take you that long to sell it? And this is because distribution want to operate as efficiently as possible. So they want to visit your brewery once a quarter pick up their beer. They don't want to come once a week. And I think we've got to turn that round a bit. And I think there's some signs of that happening within the craft beer world. If I go and look at cask, I think the only way cask can go forward is to look at the amount of money cask generates in duty and ask for some money back from the government. I'm going to give you some figures now that will probably astound you for those people who don't do the duty calculation. But in the last year of me working at Fuller's, Fuller's beer side, as opposed to the pub side, Fuller's beer side made eight million pounds profit. One million of that was due to selling wine in our pubs. So the beer side actually made seven million. Given that fact, how much duty do you think Fuller's paid to Her Majesty's government, given the fact we made seven million pound profit? For John, that figure is still astounding. But he has a suggestion as to what the government can do to aid the industry. £27 million. The government makes far more money out of beer than anybody else. Whether it's the shareholders, whether it's the employees, they make far more money. I think it's only fair they should think about giving some of that back. And if I was camera, and Seba, I would be fighting for 20 pence off cast beer in a way to give it more margin to become more important in the pub so that people look after it. So that could be 10 pence to the brewer, 10 pence to the retailer. There will be some retailers, of course, who give that to the consumer in an effort to get people in the pub. But that will split the market into cheaply produced cast beer in cheap pubs against good produced cast beer in good pubs. And the people doing it in the good pubs will produce sufficient margin to keep cast beer going. That, I believe, is a possibility for the future. But regardless of what type of beer you're producing, John says that your brewery's identity is key. And with that comes a philosophy and vision. For you, your team and your customers. I also want to look at how companies are structured. I think there's changes in our company's structure. I think small brewers are generally more ethical in what they do. And I think 
what, what will happen? Big brewers now produce far better beer. They produce refreshing, high quality, high consistent beer. But they lack flavour and character, which is what small brewers have. And small brewers need to make sure that that is delivered consistently. And that will be the trick for the future. But small brewers also, I think, need a philosophy. Every company should have a philosophy and vision that is really well apparent to the people that work for them. And they believe in that philosophy and they believe it. And within that philosophy will not be just how you make beer, but how you source the raw materials, how you treat your staff, how do you communicate to your drinkers, will all be within your philosophy. And people will buy into that. Communications will become easier and easier in, as, as we get more electronic communication. So you'll be able to talk to your individual drinker and give them or him or her information about what goes on in your brewery. Your philosophy will become very important because people will buy into it. It'd be like supporting your local football team again because we believe in what this company stands for. Also, you could even put it into your contracts of employment so everybody believes in it and, have, and signs up to it. So that means if you did get taken over, they're buying those contracts as well, so the philosophy stays in the company. If they want to change their philosophy, they're going to have to negotiate that with the workforce, perhaps. But I think that's what will happen with small companies. They will have this philosophical statement, this vision, and people will become genuine ambassadors for that company because they love it so much. When I was at Fuller's, we did something called Pride and Passion. I got some of the biggest kicks out of doing things at Fuller's doing that because we wanted people to really love Fuller's. And when, when a drayman or somebody from the offices came up to me and he said, you know, I walked into Waitrose and the London Pride shelf was empty, so I made them restack it. That is a, an ambassador for your company. And that's, I think, what you want. Is they believed in our beer so much that they would be willing to do that. The Brewers Journal podcast is a production of Reby Media, produced and hosted by me, Tim Sheehan. And me, Velo Mitrovic. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. The executive producer is Rory Harris. And a special thanks today to John Keeling.